Today, we will be speaking with Damon DeVito. We'll get to start with an introduction, and then we'll jump into the talk about startup investing. Enjoy. I'm Damon DeVito, and I'm a startup investor, entrepreneur, and a mentor in, in Techstars and a program at the University of Virginia in their incubator, where I also teach a class in startups as an adjunct for uh, people in the business school, but also occasionally throughout the university, they're uh, working on ventures. What is the most important thing to consider when investing in a startup? Well, <clears throat> how about if I answer it first, if you should invest in startups? So let's assume you're a accredited investor and people can look up what that means. Uh, it's gotten a lot more democratic and there are a couple of ways around it uh, that are legal, but that's that's not to be ignored. But the main thing to dis to think about when you invest in startups is what you don't want to do is invest in your, you know, all of your startup money in your buddy's startup or in the one your buddy told you is the right startup, because the failure rate uh, of ventures backed by the tier one venture capitalists, you know, the names that are familiar to people at all interested in startups. You know, their failure rate's like 90%. And think of what failed before it got to them. So if you just use a, a benchmark of 90% and that's the best, then, you know, the chances that if you just place one bet that it's going to work out is small. And so, you know, you it's like walking into the casino and just betting black and then walking out. Only you're not betting black, you're betting, you know, double zero or something. And so, you know, diversity in this in the in the startup game you know, there's no magic number, but if you're not in 10 deals, then I think that's problematic. Um, and, you know, you're just exposing, you can get lucky, but you just have to acknowledge that it's total luck. And there's been many times where something that was my number one investment one quarter got torpedoed by legislation or something, and then it's having a hard time. Some other one that I had written off for dead is now like, oh my God, look at how well these guys are doing. It's a long haul. It's 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 a it's ten years of illiquidity in most cases, with a very high failure rate. Now the payoffs can be very big, but that's where the diversity comes into play. So, whether you invest in that space or when you're thinking about investing in that space, that would be kind of my number one. Um, you know, just to, uh, it, I'd say caution, but it's also just knowing what you're getting into, knowing the risk reward. Does that make sense? Yeah. And can you just break down the different stages that a startup may go through typically? Yeah, the stages of the startup. And this gets gets into the second part of your first question, too, which is what's the most important looking at it as an investor once you've decided you're going to invest in this space. I mean, it's the most important is is growth. Um, you can have great teams that can't find growth because they can't connect with the customer or timing's bad or just bad luck, whatever. And so, you know, the team's essential because they'll fight through things, but is there growth in this enterprise? Now, some stages it's too early. So let's talk about stages early. And I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to align the stages with finance since, you know, that's the nature of the podcast. The first stage is friends and family. And sometimes people say friends, family and fools, but I don't, I don't like that terminology, but friends and family. So why friends and family? Because you've got an idea and 
you know, the people who are closest to you are most likely to judge, oh, Max has the character to pull off this this podcast. He has the tenacity to go out and invite people to it. And even though he won't make any money day one, maybe he could build it up over time and attract some uh, sponsors. And this could become like, um, you know, these podcasts that you see selling for a hundred million dollars. Maybe, maybe someone believes that about your podcast and the people that are most likely to believe that are someone that's close to you who already knows the positive qualities about you over knowing you for months or years and also your strengths and weaknesses and how they align with whatever it is you're proposing. Someone new <clears throat> is seeing a concept, a new business with no customers, no traction, no background, and you're new. They don't know you. They're getting to know you as a person and they try to figure out your strengths and weaknesses. So it's it's entirely on paper in the beginning. And consequently, the, the, the people, you know, the people that have done the most due diligence and are most likely to believe in you are close to you and maybe a little maybe some of their friends or that, that can include sometimes a professor or something but someone who knows you and then as you move further uh you get into angels which an angel investor is someone who is typically operating as an individual unless they're in some kind of an angel network we can talk about those things if you want more and they are making a decision and and they have their own style of investing but most of these people they either have invested in or it's their intent to invest in more than 10 uh, startups. And a lot of them are ex-founders. So they are quick get, they quickly get it, but some aren't. And they're just people that are excited to back founders and solving interesting problems or something in their area, et cetera. And they're going to write checks. It depends, right? There's, there's angels that write checks for six figures uh, routinely. And there's, there's angels that write checks, you know, early that are two, 3,000, 4,000, $5,000. And you, you know, you want to quickly figure out, okay, well, what, what is someone's comfortable style so that you're always matching up, uh, the fit between the investor and the investment, but somewhere in this angel round, you know, after you've exhausted friends and family, you, you start to get into people that are kind of strangers, but they invest, they look at investments, and also you've probably started meeting them in your course of business, building your business. Maybe you've had someone on the podcast. Uh, you just keep using your podcast just because we can use anything for an example. But, you know, you might have had someone on the podcast who's an angel investor. And then later you come back and say, Damon, um, <clears throat> you know, I didn't think your example about sponsorship would ever come true, but actually I'm starting to get a lot of offers. And now I'm trying to figure out how to build a business and could I get your advice? And now we're having multiple conversations. And so now by the time you need money, we know one another a little bit. And that's a great that's a great way to court an investor. And if you're an investor, helping first is a nice way to do to never really have to do due diligence because you've all you know, you're making friends with the people who might ultimately become something you invest in. It's time consuming. Uh, but for those who like helping in that way, it's very rewarding. So and and at once you get past angel rounds and it's with these things. Max, it's not <clears throat> people make a lot of mistakes or assumptions by saying, well, that's this dollar amount and this time frame and whatever. This is sequencing. And after some amount of angel investing, and it could be multiple rounds or it could be no rounds, eventually some kind of a of a institutional led round comes in. And this, this is where um in, you know, someone who's a professional, a venture capital firm, right? <clears throat> they're gonna come in. 
And they're going to structure around and give it a name, like a seed round or a series A. And they're going to lead that round, which means they're going to negotiate the terms. Um, it's probably not going to be, it's probably going to be something more formal than, you know, the instruments like a safe or a convertible note that are easy to, to do. You know, you could do them now for your podcast. Frankly, they, they kick a lot of cans down the road, which is their, their purpose. But the, eventually when the professionals show up, you know, they want to button everything up. They want to make sure that you didn't have a partner six years ago and you were 50-50, but they left angry and, and nobody ever wrote anything down. You know, they don't want that future litigation risk. They want to make sure, you know, the name you're using for your podcast is actually legally available. You know, maybe that didn't matter for just the listeners, but maybe it starts to matter for them. And so there's all this extra work that friends and family, they don't worry about that. Angel investors, most of them don't worry about that. They, they know it'll get sorted out, names change, whatever. But as you go further and further, you know, these professional investors, their exit is that you ultimately sell or go public. You know, these the companies they back and the, the difference in startups and a lot of other kind of investing is, you know, the intention here isn't really that these things start cash flowing and pay me a little money every year. Like if I was investing in a hotel or a car wash or uh, a public company, it's, it's pretty much all the exit. <clears throat> and so they, you know, they need to keep a clean path to get there. You, you know, so the, the seed, I, I don't know the, the history of this and, but, and I don't think it's that important, but after the seed comes, Series A, Series B to whatever. And it's really highly technical. B comes after A, C comes after B. Um, there's all, all these things where when it's not quite what the optics that it ought to be, you could do all these kind of bridge rounds, which are self-explanatory just to get from here to there or or uh, you know extension rounds. But the reality is when money's easy, it goes officially named round one to the next and things are going great. And then when, when times start, harder like they are now where there's not as much the market's kind of frozen in venture investing in a lot of ways the when that happens the um you know you end up with all people do what they have to do if you're a founder of a company you need money you um you know you you take action to raise what you need to raise and you don't worry as much about what it's called anymore because everybody understands can you touch a little more on the topic of angel investors and what angel networks are <clears throat> Yeah. So I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's the angel investor, uh, there's the, the, the various forms of networks, which they're more alike than different. Um, and then there's something like angel list and I'll, I'll set angel list separately, but I think a lot of the young audience will know it, uh, or will come to know it. The, you know, angel, the, the angel investor is, you, you know, if you think of what any investor is looking at, they have to find a deal. They have to see enough deals to be able to hone their skills at deciding which ones they like, right? Because everybody trying to cure cancer is not going to, you know, everyone with the next great, you know, app or software, it's not all going to work. And so the more you see and the more founders you meet, the better, the more skilled you tend to get at evaluating those because you stop looking at the upside and you start looking at how they're managing risk so that they can stay alive longer and be smarter with capital. So an angel that can 
be very involved. Maybe they're a mentor in a program like Y Combinator or Techstars. Techstars is one I work a lot with, uh, but I've had students and teams I help go to Y Combinator. Those are as good as it gets for accelerators. Um, and then, you know, somebody who's around it a lot, you know, they, they may just independently act and make decisions and whatever their deal flow is, they meet founders and figure out if it's a fit and make a commitment one way or the other. That leaves out a lot of people. There's plenty of people who are good at their own business, but they're a lawyer or they're a doctor or they were, they are in technology or they were in technology, but they're very busy and they're not out meeting with dozens and dozens of founders every week like I am because that's not what they do. But when they see a presentation, they can decide, oh, I like this. This seems fair terms, whatever. So those folks form together into some kind of a network. And, and, and by network, it can be distributed. But the traditional is let's meet one day a month, have a beer before the pitches, maybe have dinner. The pitches come in. You know, there's some screening committee. We see a few pitches. We ask the founders questions. Um, have another beer and go home. And so it's almost like a club in some ways. And in many cases, they pay to belong. And, you know, men and women are usually from a geographic area, but in bigger cities, it might be clustered according to profession or some common interest. Um, and then, you know, a, a founder will apply. They'll make it public, like, hey, we're here to invest. This is what we do. Here's what we like. Here's what, what we have invested in. So you can get a sense of if it's for you or not, <clears throat> and you can, um, you can, uh, you know, join forces essentially. And so um, I act independently, but I've, but I'm close with some angel networks and friends with a lot of people who are in them. And uh, also I've um, attended meetings, right. And talked to angel group founders. And so the, you know, for me, if I'm somewhere for five hours, and this is just personal, this is not a judgment anyway, but just for me, I'm kind of a, pitch junkie, right? So in five hours, I want to talk to 10 founders, right? And have a pretty in-depth one-on-one conversation. That's how I like to spend five hours. You know, in an angel group setting, five hours, you're going to see three pitches. So, but I'm different than, you know, I'm putting in a different, allocating my time differently than most of the people in an angel network. You know, what they're doing is actually very efficient because the the group probably discarded 27 applications to choose three and they didn't have to do that work then they get in a room and like the last time i went to an angel network meeting there was a drone presentation and it was pretty clever and it was it was a you know seemed really credible there was a specific use case um and you know people asked questions it was a good presentation and then people asked questions and then the founder left when the founder left one of the angels, you know, one of the 30 people in the room stood up and said, um, I oversaw the drone program at this company. I have met with this founder before. If you'd like, I'd like to tell you my opinions. Now think of that. <clears throat> There's a subject matter expert in the room who already has met this person and can educate this group. And and as you can imagine, it wasn't negative because he would have already been consulted before this got chosen as one of the 10% that got pitched. So he then lays out his concerns and his positives and everybody in the room doesn't have to go home and Google how do drones work. You can already rely on somebody who's one of you 
right? And you've you've had a beer with this person, so you've gotten to know whether they are, you know, how they how their risk profile aligns with yours, and um, how do they think about the world, etc. And so the network really becomes a way for somebody that wants to get into that kind of investing, pretty cool way to meet a bunch of people that are interested in the same thing, uh, see a bunch of deals that have been vetted for you, and also get involved, right? Because they don't, <clears throat> on, a, on the basis of a 10-minute pitch, they don't say, great, let's all just chip in this money. The network then does a little bit more due diligence and it's all it's mostly volunteer basis. So somebody could say, I'd like to be on that team. And then and you can get to know that founder more and you can do a little bit of homework and you can most importantly learn, you know, there's always a good lawyer involved. And you can you can start to look at well, what are their what are they asking about? What are the concerns that they're buttoning up and what are the I's they're dotting and T's they're crossing? So that <clears throat> when you're out doing it without the network, you've gotten this free education or this very inexpensive education from your club dues if you ever decide to go solo. Um, and so it's a really nice kind of way to do that. The other thing is that the, um, uh, you know, the angel, if you can imagine if angels are smaller dollars, like $5,000, let's say in a deal or a thousand dollars in a deal or something like that, then they're not going to see as many deals because when we get back to those stages we talked about, once you're past friends and family, you know, the startups have to start thinking about what their cap table is going to look like, their capitalization table, and how many people are going to be on it, and what risks does that create, and when when do we hit limits of the numbers of investors we can have? What are later investors going to think that I got like my 50 fraternity brothers to all kick in a thousand each? An angel group bundles all those checks together, which has two effects. One, I only have to deal with the network. I don't have to deal with all the 50 people that chipped in. Two, if 50 people chip in a thousand, that's $50,000 check. If if I have to deal with 50 different people for a thousand dollars, I'm pretty much going to lose money sending them investor updates and, and tax returns over the years. Um, and so that, you know, that that's kind of some of the, the, the nice things about when angels get together uh, in a network is they can attract more deal flow than an inactive angel can. And uh, they also, um, you know, they also are less burdensome uh, in a couple ways to, uh, or more attractive and less burdensome to the venture itself, if that makes sense. In your perspective, when has a project gone from a startup to mature company? And at what point is a startup the most innovative? Like when these institutional investors are coming in at that point, is it a mature company that is already innovated and already has a very solid product? Or is it that when these institu institutional investors come in, the company is still um, not too mature and it is still working to improve their product and develop a lot of new things? You know, uh, if, if you can find your favorite social media and find the startup section or the venture capital section, you can find some really fun and interesting discussions about when is a startup not a startup <clears throat> i don't know that there's a definition and if there was i don't know that people believe it you find situations where companies are you know they're valued at a billion dollars and they're still kind of referred to as a startup i think that high growth technology um driven those tend to be two common denominators and then also i think there, there tends to be 
when it's losing money and still needs venture capital or or capital to survive, I think there ten, there's a tendency to let it still be called a startup. And with the with sort of the rise of uh, enterprise software, which is on a unit basis very very profitable, like crazy profitable and scalable, but by the by the nature of it, once you start trying to grow, you know, three x a year. It, it means you have to have a certain sales machine behind you and the, the sales people, they don't come in and start sailing day one, right? They might not be, they might not make a sale for three to nine to 12 months. And so if you're growing three X, that means you're growing your sales force three X a year before you need those sales. So you lose money, right? As long as you're trying to grow at that pace, you're going to lose money. And the idea is to conquer the market, get big enough so that you can go public uh, or sell or whatever. And so there is some crossover point where <clears throat> you become Microsoft or something, right? You just make money. You happen to be a big company, Salesforce in the in the enterprise software company, right? Like they just at some point make money. They're just a big company. But it's funny. There's no ceremony for that. There's no like people get much more hung up about is this a seed round or a series A when I don't think any of that really matters. The question you're asking kind of does matter sometimes, right? Like at some point we're a company, but it doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not something in my experience that people really talk a lot about. The company just kind of refers to themselves a certain way and, and until they don't, right? I feel like you asked a second question that I might've missed. Yeah. I mean, um, that second question was just, at what point is a startup really innovating? And at what point is it already just running the line of products that it has created, right? When these institutional investors are coming in, this is a point where institutional investors are still looking for progress to be made in terms of innovation, or are they happy with what the company already has and thinks that with the product that they have already created, they can profit from this? You know, I've never been asked this question, so I love it. And my gut reaction answer is that founders are the most innovative when they don't have enough money. That you have to be resourceful. You don't just put things on slide like our go-to-market plan is that we're going to optimize SEO or some other bullshit that everybody says and you have to pay somebody to do and you don't know what you're going to get out of it. You know, when you when you have no money, <clears throat> that's when somebody dresses up like a cow and goes to a basketball court or, you know, something... You know, if you look back at the origin stories of these companies that are massive, a lot of times it's they just did some super clever, inexpensive thing because they had no money and they had to get somebody's attention and they just found a way to do it. There's a famous venture capitalist uh, at a, a great shop called Benchmark, um, you know, Uber, Grubhub, big like, you know, and and. Um, he, uh, Bill Gurley is the, 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 you know, sort of has just has published, I think, and talked about, you know, sometimes there'll be a $20 million marketing budget on the table at a board meeting for a company that he's a startup that he's on the board of. And, you know, there'll be some discussion about the, the allocation of funds and, you know, he's fond of saying, well, let's pretend the budget is zero. Let's say the board authorizes zero. Now what do you do? And to his way of telling it, something close to that is what the marketing plan ends up being. Even if money gets spent on it, <clears throat> forcing yourself, what do I do with no money, makes you think of 
a really practical answer because you can't waste anything. Whereas if you say, well, how, how would I spend $20 million? Not too many people say, I'll put 19.5 away. Let's just spend 500 on these known successes. You're, you, you know, you feel like, well, I have this money. I need to spend it. Expectations are high. What's everybody else doing? And you haven't tested it yet. The, the testing, you know, the, the innovation comes from the testing, in my opinion. Ironically, <clears throat> you know, you ask what, what makes this very interesting question is, you know, what do the investors want? Ironically, investors want money machines. If there was just a machine and they could just wave a wand, self-included, and just have a founder turn into an ATM machine where I put in a dollar and 10 come out, that's that's what everybody would invest in. If that's how casinos would work, no one would invest in startups because you would only ever do that, right? And so what they really want, you know, that's a silly example, right? But but if you work backwards from, from that hyperbole, what does that imply? It doesn't imply innovation. That implies I want certainty of dollars returned. But to get the returns you get in venture capital, you're in one of the most risky, illiquid investment classes. This is not a bond from a developed country's government who has never defaulted, right? There's a reason U.S. Treasuries pay, you know, 90% discount to what you expect out of a venture capital investment. It's because of the different failure rate, the different certainty. But what does an investor really want? <clears throat> they want the founder's ingenuity and innovation to be poured into de-risking the investment. So they don't want the investment to go to grow slower than it should or could, but they but they really want the stability that, hey, this is we're gonna make it. You know, this is gonna go somewhere. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh friction because you know, the ideally de-risk startup never starts. It's perfectly de-risk. Let's not do anything. We can't lose. That's not what anybody wants. They want you to start it, fix it, go fast. You know, let's take a problem that none of the other 7 billion people figured out how to solve. Let's solve that. Let's do it with no money, no people. We'll just talk people into working for us, talk people into giving us money. We'll get going. And this all sounds insane, right, Max? I mean, if you're saying <clears throat> to your, uh, you know, one of your friend's grandmothers, how should she invest her last $50,000 at age 80? This would not be what she should be doing. But, you know, then once you get going, if you've aggregated 10 or 20 of these like a professional investor or an angel investor, and you could see that the 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 founders, they use innovation in a problem solving way to try to de-risk each new challenge without being scared. They don't run and hide in the closet, right? They do what they have to do. They pursue growth, but they also ask how much growth is too much, right? Flying an airplane with one wing is stupid doesn't matter how innovative you are. That's not the way it works. Um, but <clears throat> adding four wings is also stupid because it's extra cost, extra drag, whatever. And, you know, the people that kind of ask the questions to get to that, um, that's what the investors want, right? Be be super innovative, but not so innovative. You don't need us. Let us in the game, de-risk it, but not so much that there's no growth. And that's what, you know, that's what makes it, um, I think, super interesting, very challenging, um and uh hard how can young adults look for startups to invest in so you know you're you're at college and uh 
colleges are great breeding grounds for people trying new things. You're already, your expenses are covered. You've got a bunch of free time, whether it feels like it or not. And you're around a lot of smart people. You're around a lot of professors and, and doctors that can help. <clears throat> so, you know, college campuses are great for this. And I would say that so two things, if you want to just look left and right, look in your community where this stuff's happening. So you could go, if you were interested in finance, you could get some experience by volunteering with an angel network. How can I help you guys? How can I support the screening committee? There's always scut work to be done. You have to call and verify something or Google the competitors or whatever. It's not the work that you're going to learn a ton from. It's being around those people and having them trust you a bit more and more and maybe look at the pitches. And when you start to see pitches and you start to see this, you get, you, you can, you get data, right? You train artificial intelligence with data. You train actual intelligence with data. And so even though you're too young for someone to hire you as a venture capitalist, you can do the things investors do and start to see how the investors think about risk and talk about risk and opportunity and founders. And so that's one. The And also helping, you know, if there's a if there, there's all these startup founders who are facing all these challenges we talked about on every campus, go find them. There's an incubator. There's a class. They're drinking beer or something at night. Who knows? There's the people like me who invest and teach. Go find them and say, hey, I, I'd like to learn more about this skill or I can do this. Do you have any founders that need help? I do or don't need any money um, or I'll do it for whatever, some some trinket and keep it all legal. But 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 just go in and kind of get in the game. And then you'll start to realize, oh, I like working with that person, but I didn't enjoy this other experience. Why was that? And then you can start to analyze with really your time as your investment, uh, what it is that you match up with well, because there's not perfect things. There's not checklists. And, you know, you start to see, hey, is this, is there any part of this I really like and add value to? And then you start to look for those patterns. The other thing is, you know, AngelList is of your generation. There's these things called like WeFunder and crowdfunding platforms. <clears throat> but AngelList has really changed the game. I mean, I just launched a fund, a venture capital fund called the Corner Fund. I did it on AngelList. And I did it because I asked somebody that I'm an, a limited partner in their venture capital firm who did everything the traditional way. And he said, if I were to do it again, I would do the early fund on AngelList. They just make everything easy. So you can go to AngelList's website and you can see deals and you can see funds and you can see rolling funds. You can see the corner fund, which is my fund. You can't join them all, but there's a lot of it that is open for business. And there also is a lot of tools about job search, um, you know, what's a good investment and these sorts of things. And you're just in this uh, digital, if you're a digital native, you're in this digital universe of, you know, all about startups and startup investing. If you're accredited, you can, you know, sign up an account and invest as little as $1,000 in a syndicate. You know, you could put together your own syndicates if you're qualified. Um, and so, you know, play by the rules. Don't lie on any of the accreditation forms. But you can start to see, well, I can, this is way more democratic than it was eight years ago. Right. Some laws changed that opened up some things. And then AngelList is one of the one of the tools that came available. And it's powerful. I mean, it is, you know, it, it, it's amazing of your generation.